We're back. It's Engage Magazine on American Family Radio. Whenever I see a building, I, I look at it and I think, wow, what, would it, what must it be to look at an empty plot of ground and think, here is where a skyscraper is going to stand one day. And not only that, but to go to a piece of paper and take an image from your head and then transition that to a piece of paper or to, to take a block of wood and say, this is going to look like uh, Leonardo da Vinci made it and, and sculpt something absolutely beautiful. I've always wanted to have the gift of thinking like an artist, of mm. thinking like an architect, of thinking like an apologist. Mm. Because whenever I see, whenever I hear arguments being made, I'm always wondering, okay, what's the thought process that led them to this yep. answer? Mm-hmm. What's the work that had to be done before this debate or before the question ever came up? What was the work that went in behind it? Because I want to experience that training. I want to learn that, and then I want to learn how to think apologetically. And to help with that today, we've got Alex McFarland, who is an author, who is a speaker, who is a host conference, who is, if you can think of it, he's probably done it. I don't know if you've built any skyscrapers, Alex. Uh, no, he not. has not. All no. right, so the one we found the one thing Alex does not do, uh, but we've had him on uh, in several episodes past. If you happen to miss the first segment, where we just kind of talked about what apologetics is, what apologetics is not, and some different principles behind that, you can always check us out at EngageMagazine.net slash podcast, but... Alex, what we're going to do right now is we're not going to split this segment into two. And what we're going to do is we're first going to discuss some of the principles uh, of apologetics, sure. how to build into, how to prepare uh, for an apologetic discussion. And then in the, and then kind of toward the end, uh, we're going to hit some really, really hard questions such as, how could a good God call for the genocide of an entire race in the Old Testament. Don't answer it yet. We're going to hit it, but just to prep you for that. So first off, let's talk about some of the really early training in apologetics. You had mentioned doing Google searches. What are some organizations, what are some books specifically that you can recommend? Oh, great question. Well, thanks very much. Uh, well, number one is is the Bible. I mean, I think the mm-hmm. first tool for any apologist is to really know the Word of God, like First Peter 3.15 that says, Set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. Be ready always to give an answer. And do this with gentleness and respect. I mean, there's a world of apologetics methodology in First and Second Peter. Um, but depending on the subject, for instance, creation versus evolution, um, Answers in Genesis, AIG, with my friend Ken Ham, has done so much work, and they're, they're amazing— Um, uh, on so many issues. But then you've got uh, past and present. C.S. Lewis was great. G.K. Chesterton was great, a name that may be somewhat unfamiliar to people. Uh, E.J. Carnell was a guy, Francis Schaeffer, the late, great Chuck Colson. Um, It's interesting, though, regardless of the the change of culture, and here we are in the 21st century, the big issues uh, have been around forever. And I, I want to give you the, the, really the six big issues, truth, God, the Bible, Jesus, the problem of pain, and other religions. Okay, does truth exist? Does God exist? Can I trust the Bible? Did Jesus rise from the grave? Why is there pain and suffering? And then number six, how do I relate to people of other religions? It may surprise a lot of your listeners to know that really there have been apologists those that defend the faith and try to give an answer for the hope we have, all the way going back to the first and second century. Well, look at Stephen. That's what he was doing. Yeah. You know, he was, he was being the first apologist and the first martyr. It, well, exactly, exactly. And, and Paul, I mean, in Acts 17, 
where Paul says this unknown God mm-hmm. that, that you try to give a nod to, but you don't really know who it is, that's who I'm going to tell you about. So nowadays, we're like Paul. We're going to Mars Hill. We're going to the Areopagus. And in a world where dozens of belief systems compete for the hearts and minds of people, we're trying to help them know Jesus. So the apologists, we present, we explain, we defend. God loves you. Uh, let me explain what Jesus did on the cross. And if need be, not only present, explain, but defend. L- let me give an illustration of, of like getting in the ocean. Let's say somebody, um, everybody wants to get in the water and enjoy the ocean, right? Somebody's born in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and they're, you know, they live a block away from the ocean. Yay. But then there's like me. I was born 200 miles inland. Mm-hmm. If, if I'm going to step in the ocean, I got to get in the car, drive three hours, and then step in the ocean. It's like this. Some people, they don't have any problem trusting Jesus. Mm-hmm. There must be a God. He loves me. But then there's another person. What about the Bible? What about uh, did any eyewitnesses really see Jesus alive? Apologetics is the automobile that takes them down to the water's edge. They still have to choose to step into the water. But what we've done for the person that's 200 miles away from God, we're trying in our friendship, in our content, apologetics puts them in a position where they can exercise that faith because the great obstacle of distance has been removed. Right, which takes such a load off of the believer because, you know, what? and and this is in all honesty, I've never seen somebody get saved by apologetics, period. They're not going to. Christ is going to save them now. Yeah. Like you say, apologetics can remove some barriers. It can soften the soil. It can sow the soil, those types of things. But ultimately, salvation lies with Christ, not in apologetics. So the exactly. pressure is not on you to provide all the answers. Right. And one of the best answers that I've ever, because I was I was kind of similar to that. I was searching. I was asking a bunch of questions. Uh, I had great godly parents, uh, and, and I would go to them with answer or with questions. One of the best answers they ever gave me is, I have no clue. I don't even know how to start answering your question. Let's go find somebody who can, and they'll answer it not just for you, but for me, because I want to know that too. Well, yeah. Let me give an example of, of how apologetics can be used by the Holy Spirit, because really, we can't save anybody. We're just the messenger boy, right? Okay, but I, I, was, um, I had spoken in a town. A man who uh, had a coworker who was a Muslim asked me if I would meet with this Muslim gentleman, which I did. And so... He said, well, you know, the Bible has been changed. Islam believes that the New Testament has been corrupted. And now I know about the manuscripts have been preserved, the content has been preserved. So I said, okay, well, here's my question. If the New Testament is untrustworthy because it's been altered, it's been changed, you say, okay, what are the changes and when were they stuck in? Mm-hmm. And, and he looked at me. I said, because look, the same New Testament manuscripts that existed in the first and second centuries, existed at the time of Muhammad in 571 when he was born, 622 when he invented Islam, and exists today. So if you say we can't trust the New Testament because it's been changed, when were those changes stuck in and what were they? Do you know six months go by, he calls me, the Muslim man, he said, I want, I want Jesus. He said, that gnawed at me. And I said, yeah, the, you can trust the New Testament because we, we know the manuscripts have been preserved. The changes that your imam told you are in there never happened. So anyway, but that was an example of just one little tidbit that caused him to think and study months later. 
uh, we saw him accept Christ as his Savior, and his life was changed. So don't be overwhelmed if you hear the word apologetics, and maybe you've heard some of our discussions before and think, ah, there's just no way. I'm not a theologian. I, I, you, when they hear the word apologetics, you think of these big names like Josh McDowell, C.S. Lewis, Robbie Zacharias, Alex McFarlane, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, or you think of a 400-page book that, that, you, know, that right. you came across. What apologetics is is giving a clear answer, giving mm-hmm. a clear answer. And you can find that word, Apologia. Is it apologia? How do you pronounce uh, it? Uh, yeah, really, it's pronounced apologia. Okay. But, but people say apologia, but it's a Greek word. It means to speak in defense of. And you can see that uh, several times in the New Testament. I, Acts 22.1, 1 Corinthians 9.3, uh, Philippians 1.7, verse 16. I'm and, of course, the most uh, famous one is First Peter right. 3.15. So... Uh, but one of the things we want to move from is from what we just discussed on how to respond to Christians or how to respond to other people in a Christian manner using apologetics, which we discussed there, being humbled, respectful, be patient, have an eternal goal in mind. But now we want to ask you an apologetic question. Okay. That's the one mm-hmm. we've been teasing up to this point. I hope I know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> how could a good God call for genocide in the, New, in the Old Testament? Oh, a great question. Because during the course of the Old Testament, you see Israel moving into their promised land, and they had Amorites, they had Philistines, uh, they had a lot of opposition. And God told Israel uh, in several occasions to go in and kill the people that opposed The women, the children, the animals, everything. Yes, exactly. So the question becomes, uh, is God a moral (laughs) bad guy? Mm Mm-hmm. so let, let me put that because a lot of people say I wouldn't believe in a God that's a, a bloodthirsty, right. warlike, uh, vengeful deity like the Old Testament. But we've got to remember what's going on here. God is raising up the nation of Israel through whom to send the Savior. Uh, through the nation of Israel, God told Abraham, through you all the families of the earth would be blessed. All right, so let's ask this question. Could God have had a morally sufficient reason to tell Israel to kill the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Philistines? And the answer is yes, because here's the deal. As Israel moved into their land over a period of about 420 years, because as they were becoming a nation, we're talking four centuries plus, the people of the land, you'll see that phrase in the Old Testament, the people of the land, they heard about the Hebrew God. And some of them did become believers in the Hebrew God, like Rahab uh, was, was a Gentile believer. So here's the question. What's worse for several thousand pagans to die that, look, if you, if you don't trust God in 420 years, chances are you're not going to. <laughs> I mean, really. What would be worse for 400 uh, years of pagans to, to die or for the human race to not have a Savior? Clearly, the, 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 the worse situation would be if Israel, as Satan wanted, Satan was trying to kill off the nation of Israel, Satan was trying to derail God's plan of salvation. Uh, what would be far worse than this, the death of several thousand pagans would be for the human race, 40 billion humans, to not have a Savior. Mm-hmm. So clearly, God had a morally sufficient reason for telling Israel to defend itself to build up the the nation. But this whole question is flawed, though, 
Mm-hmm. That's what I was going to say. A lot of the times it's in the way the question's asked. Because yes, it is. Yes, it is, which is something I want to get to really quick. Well, what, what right does God have to take a life? Every right, because he's the one who gave the life. Mm-hmm. So God can't commit genocide. Look, that's what I, <laughs> whether God allows you to die of old age, whether God allows you to die of a heart attack, whether you fall off a, a, a cliff, or whether God permits an intruder to murder you, uh, God gave life. It's God's prerogative to determine when and how that life gets called in. So when when um, people today shake their fists and they'll say, how can God commit genocide? Well, he didn't. Right. And I want you to see what he just did. What he, what Alex just did with that question is that he applied a knowledge of Scripture. He dissected the question, answered the question behind the question, and he also applied logic. That is how we think like an apologist. If you want to know more, you can always listen back to this episode at EngageMagazine.net slash podcast. You can also read the different articles by Alex at EngageMagazine.net. Until next week, keep on sharing truth and applying Scripture.